briefly carry on that theme and touch three more traits of sincere love. And what I'll do is I'll read verses 9 through 16 in Romans 12, but we're just going to be focusing on verses 14, 15, and 16 as we looked at the prior last week. So starting at verse 9 for context, this is the pivotal foundational statement for this section. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. I like that translation one of you read that said, outdo, like it was this idea of outdoing one another with honor. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And then the verses for this morning, starting at verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So as we continue on this idea of what, what a genuine love looks like, not a superficial love, not a, not a hypocritical love, a love that play acts, but a genuine love, we see that love is gracious toward opposition. And as I mentioned here, Paul starts to set his sights on his next exhortation, as he begins to focus in a way that will reveal that our love must not just be contained within the walls of the church, but must outflow to the rest of the community. Again, even, but with, even to those who would scorn us, even to those who would show us contempt and would oppose us. I'm not going to dwell here long at all because we'll cover, we'll cover this more in depth as we look at Verses 17 through 21 in two weeks. We're going to pause for Mother's Day next week. But the basic idea is that we would wish those who treat us poorly well. We would wish not harm, but good. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that this is one of the most counterintuitive things that the gospel calls us to. To wish someone well who treats us with hatred, to wish someone who well, who we thought we could trust but has betrayed us, to wish someone well who is gossiping about you or slandering you. Those are, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the gospel calls us to places that are so, so different than the way the rest of the world lives. Jesus said in Luke 6, 28, but I tell you who hear me, and clearly those, all people could hear him, but it's this idea of the one who would have an ear to hear, the one who would be willing to listen. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if we're honest, we also have to be ready to live this out at some level, even within the church community. For we're not entirely safeguarded from hurts and betrayals, even within the family of God. Though the family of God should have a different level of accountability to one another, 
for that's also a component of love. So love is gracious toward opposition. Next, sincere love should be an empathetic love, sharing in both the highs and lows of life with others. Now, I, I think we, we need to pause here to say that there's some things that this doesn't mean. <laughs> I, I don't think that this means that we become controlled by another person's bad temperament. That's different. There are people, and I'm sure there are people that you know, that, that are happy to be miserable all the time, that are happy to find fault in everything, <laughs> that, that just want to wallow in that place. And there's times to, to sit with them there, and there's times to encourage them away from that place, and, and really that takes a great amount of discernment uh, in the Lord. But, but it's not about being controlled by another person's bad temperament but rather a willingness to, to kind of move away from our self-absorbed thinking, the fog of self that we're so often in, and enter into the life experiences of another, to enter in wholly and truly, not always thinking about our experiences and how they compare and, and what, we're, what we're doing later on or what have you, but to truly and wholly enter in. The Bible is very honest about life. The Bible is very honest that life is both beautiful and tragic. It's incredibly honest about that. It's raw about that. We all experience both. The Life Application Bible Commentary says, Christianity is neither denying life's hardships or dulling life's excitements. Our perspective of eternity in Christ can free us to enter into the full variety of living both laughter and tears are appropriate before God. But a Jesus disciple is willing to enter into the joys and sorrows, not just of themselves, not just to say, well, the gospel frees me to really experience all the variety of life in Christ, but it also frees us to enter it into it for others. John Stott says, love never stands aloof from other people's joys and pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into the experiences, their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity with them. So again, like all true forms of genuine love, this takes a relinquishing of the thoughts of oneself. It's, it's to really prioritize someone else and their experiences and their situation above your own. To enter into someone's pain is a willingness to hurt with them even when your circumstances in life are happy. To enter into someone's rejoicing takes a willingness to set aside all envy and jealousy and self-pity that would cause us to resent another's happiness. To enter in even when things are hard or you don't have what they have and you say, ah, oh, it's so good that God has blessed you like that. Isn't this the example of Jesus? We see him celebrating at the wedding feast of friends 
celebrating so much so that he wouldn't let the celebration stop, that when they were embarrassingly running out of wine, he miraculously created the finest of wine so that the celebration of friends can continue. But he's also the one who at the grave of Lazarus, who saw these, his, these women, these sisters of Lazarus, that he so loved, that they were such good friends, weeping. He wept with them. He met them in that place. He entered in, even though, though he, he knew full well that in just minutes he would rise Lazarus, raise Lazarus from the dead. So genuine love is gracious toward opposition, and it's an empathetic love, sharing and entering into people's highs and lows. And lastly, genuine love is humble. We've heard already this morning that earlier in the chapter, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So Paul, once again, you can, you can sense how important this point is, that he once again brings it back around, that love is humble, it demands humility. There's no place, as he warns against conceit and kind of an overinflated sense of self-worth or a holier-than-thou attitude. And it's interesting, in this verse 16, it could be talking about being willi- willing to associate with people of lower status, or it could even just be talking about being willing to do menial work. Do you connect only with people that make you feel good about yourself? People that are easy for you to be with. People or people that you think will get you ahead or can serve you or do something for you. Do you view any jobs or service beneath you? (laughs) That's not for me. That's clearly for someone else. All of that sort of snobbery is dispelled as we live in view of God's mercy. And Paul couples this this humble love with harmony. That you need that sort of humble love to live in harmony with one another. It's only in humility that harmony is found. Only in humility that harmony is sustained. But where you find pride and where you find arrogance and where you find conceit and self-righteousness or a pious narrow-mindedness and the like, you are certain to find discord. Harmony here means of the same mind. And we shouldn't take that to mean that we're going to agree on everything because we won't. That, that's not, we've heard some of these students talk about the beauty and, and, and trial of community. You don't enter into a group of diverse people and see everything eye to eye all the time. But it means that as Christians, we all have the mind of Christ. And that mind of Christ is a mind that should be being renewed by the Holy Spirit of God that his way of thinking, that his priorities, that his perspectives would become ours. And Christ leads us in the way of genuine meekness, of genuine humility, not having to get my way, not having to assert my rights, 
Liz, Beth, Elizabeth. <laughs> I also had down these verses in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And why is that possible? Because Jesus says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. John Philip says, It has been well said of the Lord Jesus that his life and death are a standing rebuke to any, every form of pride to which men are liable. Pride of birth and rank, is this not the carpenter's son? Pride of wealth, the son of man hath not a place to lay his head. Pride of respectability, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Pride of personal appearance, he hath no form nor comeliness. Pride of reputation, a friend of publicans and sinners. Pride of learning, how knoweth this man his letters, never having learned. Pride of superiority, I am among you as he that serveth. Pride of success, he is despised and rejected of men. Pride of ability, I can of my own self do nothing. Pride of self-will, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Pride of intellect, as my Father hath taught me, I speak. So then, the Christian is to shun pride, be not wise in your own conceits. Status should never be an issue for the follower of Jesus. John warned of a man named Diotrephes. I knew I was going to stumble over that. In his third letter to the church. And he says simply of this man that he was one who loves to be what? Anybody know? First. He was one who loves to be first. If we're to follow after Jesus' example, we should see that there's no greater disparity in status than the Son of God who would come and dwell with sinners. Not only that, he went out of his way to fellowship with the poor. He went out of his way to fellowship with the social rejects of his time, especially those that the religious elite called the worst of sinners. I'm often grieved when I hear Christians justify keeping out certain types of people. That is completely anti-gospel, anti-Christ. Jesus said, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So love that is as sincere is gracious toward opposition, empathetic in sharing another's highs and lows, and always lives in humility, which is the only fertile ground in which harmony can thrive. So as we come to the communion table, I just with some scripture want to tie in those themes to the fact that Jesus, especially as he 
submits to the crucifixion, submits to the cross, gives us no greater picture of what sincere love is. For who is more humble than Jesus? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Who was more humble than Jesus? Who was more empathetic than Jesus? Who was more willing to enter in to our life? John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Out of Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he was made to be like them, fully human in every way. How could there be more empathy, more solidarity than that? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to make help those who are being tempted. Who is more empathetic than Jesus? And who is more gracious toward opposition than Jesus? Out of Luke's gospel, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, speaking of you who have come to trust in Christ. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And finally, Romans 5, 6 through 11 who is more gracious than Jesus? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for me and for you. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this morning as we share in communion, we celebrate Jesus, his humility, his empathy, his graciousness shown toward us. Once God's enemies, now reconciled. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, I invite you to come and as we pass this, well, we're going to pass out the elements to, to partake, to reflect, to give thanks. If you do not trust in the Lord or that's a question mark to you, we'd invite you to pass the elements, but not to let another day pass before you turn to him in repentance and faith. I'm going to pass out the elements, and then if you would, just you can pray silently, give thanks. Just hold on to the bread and cup. There's, for those who are gluten-free, there's gluten-free wafers available. And then when everybody has the elements, we'll take it together.